Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. And I came into the group, I did not have anything, okay, anything. That means I was so sad, I was so depressed, emotionally wanted to kill myself. And, but I still, it was almost a year, I still thought that I didn't, I didn't really get that, that, see, there's something that I cannot control in any way. There's, it doesn't matter what I'm going to do and what I'm going to think and what I'm going to, it's always going to be stronger than me and it's always going to happen at that. That means how much I'm going to try to stop it, it's going to keep on happening and getting worse. Now, th- that happened after six, seven months in the program, I was acting out constantly, coming from a meeting to a prostitute to a meeting to a strip club, a meeting to eight hours porn. And I used to come... It happened after a very long time. It was seven months. It was the worst time of, of my life. I mean, seriously, I see a lot of times people in the groups, sometimes I want to just tell them, you know, you just, just get out of here. Okay. It, it's, it was the worst time of my life. Those seven months coming into a meeting, wanting to stay sober and, and looking at the people in the group and saying, this doesn't work. There's no way I had to stop this. I mean, I, I really understand. But after seven months and, and, and it was, it was really, I felt that it happened slowly. It did not happen in one bang. But when it happened, it happened very strongly that I felt that there's no way out of this. There's no way out of this. I am going to die from this disease in a very, very bad way. And I, and I felt it already. That's when happened that's when the program started happening with me i really felt what it means to wake up in the morning and to know that nothing in the world is going to help me i am going to act out today i'm going to kill my marriage i'm going to die and and when that happened the pain was so strong that i came into a meeting i remember it just today in french hill in israel i came from israel i forgot to tell you i'm so happy to be here and I came into the meeting, and I got up and I said, guys, I am going to die. I am going to die. And I felt it so strong. Now, this today is one of the most strongest presents I could say that I got in the program. Because really, if, if a person doesn't get to this spot, he, he won't have the courage to do, to do the hard work of walking over to his teacher's that he made them crazy when he was 13, 14 years old and ask, I'm sorry and say, you know, what I did 20 years ago was crap and I'm, I really feel bad for that. How could I change? There's no way how a person, an addict would go do this if he really knows that a half a year ago when he was by his step one situation, he knew that he's going to die. 
Now this gives me the, that's the power that gives me, I got two more minutes. Gives me the, the, the power to keep on coming to the program and doing what the program said, my sponsor. And it's sometimes so boring, you know, really, it's so boring just to come to a meeting and hear people cry. My wife, my kids, my job, my wife, my kids, my job. Same shit. Sorry. Same crap. Fun the big, fun the, and, and it's so sad because see, I want to, I sometimes just want to grab the guy, you know, shake him up, say, oh, you're dying. But you know what? It's a present. It's a present that God gave me that bring me to this place of understanding that nothing in the world is going to help me. When I got to this place, the only power that really was able to take me out was step two that I believed that there were people in the rooms. I really believed that they're really not lying. Okay, because... I really, there were two things when I came into the group and I saw people sharing that they're sober for a long time, sobriety, was or they're liars, or they're, or they're really not so sick like I am. I mean, normal people don't masturbate five to six or seven times a day. That's really crazy. Okay, that's eight hours and masturbating three times before a prostitute and two times after, and then running on the streets looking into other people's windows. They're really not, but you know what? I started believing that there are people in this, in this program that are not lying, that they're really talking from their heart. And that's, that's the present. That's why I feel when I come into these places on the other side of the world, it gives me such happiness just to sit here and take a deep breath and look around in the, in the, in the, in the group and, and listening to people sharing their experience. The same experience that I have. And it's, it's, it's geschmack. How do you say geschmack? It's wonderful. Yeah. That's a Yiddish word. Sorry. We don't mix in religion in the program, but yeah, that's my, anyway, um, I was, um, thank you for letting me share today. I did not get ready anything to say today, but I said, you know, before I went into the room, I said, Hashem, you know, God, Put the words in my mouth, please, because if I am going to start telling my story, half of this room are probably going to walk out. So I'm happy I didn't say it. And whoever really wants to hear the details, I'll tell them after the meeting. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Penny. Okay, I'm Dennis W. Uh, my sobriety day is July 2nd, 1996. I'll never be sufficiently grateful for my sobriety. Um, my life has completely changed. I spent many, many years grooming the next person to have sex with them. I came to understand for myself that it wasn't so much about the act of uh, having sex with them as it was the fantasy that led up to it. Once I had my uh, arms around that, all of a sudden it was, uh, I found, started to find my way towards sobriety. How is it now? I live a life that's much more honest, it's much more open. I do the best I can to connect to others. I care. A dramatic change from what it once was. Today I'm here. I want to try to help the sexaholic who has not realized the full consequences of his or her actions. That describes me. I have participated in things that I have not yet paid the price for participating in. The question is, That, well, that sexaholic, that was me at one time, believed 
that they were more powerful than the sexaholism. And they believed that their life was manageable. I thought I was more powerful. I could control it. I could handle it. I hadn't realized those terrible consequences. I was what you would the literature describes as a high-bottom drunk. I still had my job. I still had my marriage. I still had my kids. I still had my home. The question becomes, do they have to experience, did I have to experience the loss of everything to finally realize and accept their powerlessness and their unmanageability? Do they have to be a low-bottom drunk to recover? I'm going to attempt to to answer that question. And I'll start by saying, I hope not. I don't want any of us to lose everything. I don't want us, I don't, don't want us to be in that situation. What I do want uh, them to do, I, I'll talk now in terms of sponsees. I've been blessed with some excellent sponsees over the years. I want them to accomplish two goals when preparing their first step. The first thing I want them to accomplish is to understand how powerlessness manifests itself in their life. I didn't understand how powerlessness manifested itself in my life because everything was still seemed to me to be in control and okay. I want them, second, to understand how their life is becoming more and more unmanageable. I don't think you could have convinced me at that time that my life was unmanageable. I controlled my calendar. I made my appointments. I got the deal done. I paid my rent. I didn't think my life was unmanageable. So the toughest sponsee I've ever had to get on board uh, with this program is those that have only suffered a few minor consequences, yet their acting out behaviors continue to progress. So without a method to do so, one can only consider one event at a time. I just jumped a paragraph. They believe their lives are manageable because nothing really bad has happened. To overcome this rationalization, this lie, and this is how it was done for me, thank God for sponsors, one has to create a way for them to see the big picture, all of their acting out as a whole. And that was what the first step became for me. Without a method to do so, without a a way of looking at the whole picture, we can only consider one event at a time. It's just the way the human mind works. And that's where, that was the pit I had fallen into. I considered everything as one event at a time. Oh, that wasn't so bad. Nobody caught me. I still can pay my rent. Food's on the table. Let's keep going here. So, in order to paint the big picture, to get the whole thing out in front of me, for it to help them do so, this is how I guide them. I have them construct a list that has two columns. In the first column, I invite them to start with their earliest memory of sexuality, whatever it is. It can be as innocuous as I touched myself or I looked at my sister in the shower or or whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be a completed act. It's an awareness. It's the first time I felt the buzz inside of me. So I have them start there, and then I have them list milestone events. Not every dirty, rotten, stinking thing that they've ever done. That's not what I see a first step as. What I want them to do is to have mileposts. 
when I was six years old, this is where my head was at. If, in fact, their sexuality awareness started then. At eight, this is where I was at. At nine, this is what I was doing. At 11, there's usually a lot of mileposts between beginning and late adolescence, early adulthood, just because we're humans and that's how thing, how we roll. But I also encourage them to continue with the mileposts all the way up until the present. We talk during this time. I encourage them. I tell them, this is not about you denigrating yourself subjugating yourself to me. This is about you becoming rigorously honest with yourself. Just put it down on the piece of paper. But I also tell them, please find a secure place for this document. Don't leave it where your kids and your wife and whomever can find it. Perhaps someday you'll choose to share it with them, but having them discover it before things are right, the time is right can cause immeasurable harm in those relationships of trust and such. So I encourage them, find a secure place to keep this until we decide, we as a team, sponsor and sponsee, that it's time to divulge any of it, perhaps all of it, a decision to be made later. So they work their way down column one. They give me a call. They say, Dennis, I've got it. I say, good. Let's talk about column two. This always seems to be the biggest challenge for them. In column two, what I say to them, I want you to go back and make believe that you're still six years old. I'll just make this up at this time. Uh, at six years old, they were uh, running around the house naked when mom and dad weren't there. Okay. So if you would have been discovered at that time doing that, what would have been the consequences? Put your six-year-old hat back on, and the answer probably to, to that would be, well, mom and dad would probably tell me to stop it. No big deal. Okay. Continue going on down. Nine years old, you're out uh, playing doctor with the uh, uh, neighbor's daughter. What's the consequences then? It's probably going to be different because you're nine years old. Later on, I was caught masturbating in the uh, bathroom at school. Of course, I'm making this up right now, but what would have been the consequences in eighth grade if that would have happened? I don't know about you, I would have jumped off the roof. You know, that would have been horrible. And on we go. So why am I asking them to do this? In column one, I'm asking them to get rigorously honest and start to understand the idea of progression. For me, my sexaholism progressed. Today, I'll do this, but I swear to God, I'll never do that. Tomorrow, I was doing that and swearing to God I would never do this. And then the day... You all know kind of how that goes. But it's the second column where I ask them to revisit the idea of progression. And this is the question I ask the person who hasn't ended up in jail, who hasn't lost their wife, who hasn't been humiliated in the community. I say to them, let's talk about the risk that you were willing to take. Let's go down that second column and talk about the consequences that you're finally willing to be rigorously honest about and say to yourself, what were you risking when you were 12? What were you risking when you were 16? How about 23? How about 32? How about I'm 66 now? Okay. What were you risking? And almost always, they're able to discover the fact that, holy smokes, not only was my acting out behavior progressing, a story that most of us know well, 
but also was my tolerance for risk. I was willing to risk more and more and more and more. Folks, that on one side it's unmanageability, or on one side it's powerlessness, on the other side it's unmanageability. That tolerance for risk defines the unmanageability for the person who is, has not yet been charged for a crime or lost their, uh, their um, marriage. And that's what I wanted to bring and share with you today is to give you, to help you as I was helped at one time to get my arms around, okay, Dennis, you are out of control. You are risking everything and you're taking bigger and bigger risks all the time. So in the end, I invite them to present it to me. We talk our way through it. Some choose to just do that with me. Some choose to do that with the rest of the group. So I also have to add a warning to this. Because we could be dealing with crimes that would put the person hearing the share into the position of being, a, if they were a mandatory reporter, I'm going to tell you straight up here, it's best practice, as it's been taught to me and I've experienced, ask the person who's giving you the first step to leave out details, dates, names, and places. If you think about it, it's really not necessary. I'm certainly not suggesting everybody who's a sexaholic has things like that in their history, but what I am saying is for best practices to protect me, the sponsor, and to protect the sponsee, let's just understand clearly that this is something that we should do. Best practice says leave out names, dates, places, and behaviors. And we can still share in a way that completes the first step, establishes the fact that our disease is progressive, we're powerless over that progression and that our lives are unmanageable and we're powerless over that unmanageability. Again, I'm grateful for this program, its teachings, and all the men and women who stand, uh, sit around the, uh, sit in the meetings that I attend. I'll never be sufficiently grateful for my sobriety. And with that, I pass. I need to read something to you. Uh, here are the guidelines for sharing at this meeting. If you would like to share, please come up ahead of your turn and make a line by sitting in the assigned chairs up front. This chair will go next. When it is your turn to share, please speak clearly so that everyone can hear you. In participation, we avoid topics that can lead to dissension or distraction. We also avoid explicit sexual descriptions and sexually abusive language. The emphasis is on honesty, recovery, and healing. How to apply the 12 steps and the 12 traditions in our daily lives. No crosstalk, please. If someone feels another is getting inappropriately ex explicit or is focusing excessively on the problem rather than the solution, they may so signify by quietly raising their hand. Although this is an anonymous meeting, please remember that anonymity does not mean legal confidentiality. The state of New Jersey has specific regulations that mandate specific behaviors to be reported. Please be mindful of what you share, not to break your own or another member's anonymity.
I am going to invite myself to be the timekeeper for the number of people who are in the room. We have about 36 minutes left. So how about if we limit it to two minutes? At 520. So we have 26 minutes left. So let's limit it to a minute and a half. We can get something done in a minute and a half, I believe. When there's five minutes left, I'm going to stop the meeting and read this final um, statement. Do we have anybody that would like to come up and share? I'm Elliot. I'm a sexaholic. Um, I'm relatively new to the program. As I said in a previous share, that um, I'm sober since March 31st, 2017. And uh, I said to myself, "What? when is this disease become unmanageable? Well, my situation, my acting out got so powerful. I was taking my wife on a vacation to... Um, uh, Connecticut, a place by the water, romantic, and so on and so forth. I could not control, I could not control, I repeat it twice, my urge to call my acting out partner and tell her where I was on FaceTime. So I went into the bathroom, I called her, she called my back, called me back, and my wife saw her picture in the, on the FaceTime and saw her face, and she has not, the trauma that's hit her, thank God, by grace of God, I'm still with her, and uh, we just got back from Israel, had a wonderful trip, and it was great, but that day, she says she can never forget it, she saw the woman's face, the woman called her all sorts of names, and it was just unmanageable, from my point of view, uh, and then I said to myself, I've got to do something, and uh I went to a recovery program in Nashville, I mean in uh, Tennessee, a place called The Ranch. Um, it set me straight and made me realize that I've got to work the steps to, to get what I need to do to make myself uh, uh, I'm a person that's in recovery. I'm never going to be totally recovered. Disease is progressive. Um, it does takes over your mind and takes over everything. So we've got to be weary, leery of that. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you. I am Sean from Sanibel, Florida. Hi, Sean. And I've been sober with the grace of God since uh, November 2004. I am a lustaholic. And Kenny, it's nice to speak here. I spoke in Israel, and I said, my name is Sean. I'm a lustaholic. Stop. Translate into Hebrew. And then I said something else, and I said, hold on, I'm 80 years of age. I can't remember what I said the first time. <laughs> so it's nice to be able to speak a little, uh, you know. <laughs> the food was so horrible, I ate everything they could put down to me. But, you know, seriously, I love being a, a lustaholic. I love being a sober lustaholic. I love what this program's done for me. I have never since, I have a childhood disease. Today, I am a free, happy, joyous, and free as the program gave me, just because I did what you told me to do. A few simple suggestions. And I have to be visual, man, and, and I tell you, I'll simplify it because we have time limits here. The first three steps are giving up, surrendering on my knees to God of my experience. The second th 
three, four, five, and six are owning up. Owning up for my behavior to somebody and God, the sponsor. Seven, eight, nine are making up with the people that I hurt. I flew all the way back to Ireland where I was born and went to the graves there to make amends to the people that I hurt. Because of gossip. That's one of my big diseases, gossip. And 11, 10, 11, and 12, and I'll finish with this, are the growing up steps. And guess what I'm doing? I'm 80 years of age, just had a birthday, and I'm growing up. Thank you, God. Hi, I'm Yehuda. I'm a sexaholic. Grateful to be here. Love you, Penny. Nice to meet you. Um, so in our book, we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. And I suffer from this delusion in a big, big way. Um, in spite, from what I've been led to believe, the unmanageability is not necessarily external unmanageability, the consequences of my actions and acting out. It's the internal, uh, emotional, spiritual agony that I suffer from when I'm stone cold sober. That's the unmanageability that uh, I need a power greater than me to to help me with because on my own, I can't do it. Um, but I suffer from this delusion. It is persistent and it's it's deadly. Um, I, I very much identified with the first share of, of the two shares um, the gift of desperation is a gift that I can't, you know, I can ask God for it. And I have been doing that. Um, the gift of awareness that this stuff is going to rob me blind of everything that's worth anything in my life. And then it's going to kill me in a horrendous way. Um, and I like very much the second share, the, the kind of the structure that was laid out, um, as to how my own experience and my own enlightened self-interest can be used uh, to, to help me to be brought from a place of ignorance and delusion to a place of enlightenment and and uh, open-mindedness. And, you know, I really do pray that this weekend will be a, a place of revelation for me and everybody. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Mark. Still in early sobriety, um, I just want to say that um, um, I found that uh, admitting my powerlessness to my higher power and asking uh, help from my higher power um, um, is the is the um, secret I found to not just dealing with lust and lustful thoughts but also with the feelings that come when the stopper is taken out of the, uh, when the stopper is put into the lust pipeline, it comes out of the feelings pipeline. And I found that uh, uh, I was, when I stopped uh, acting out, that all these feelings burst forth, especially uh, resentments and uh, things like fears and anger. And I found that um, while I was driving to meetings, my mind is arguing cases <laughs> like in court with people. And uh, when I found myself doing that, I just asked my higher power to, um, I admitted my powerlessness to him and asked him to take these things away. And they went away. If they came back, I would do it again. And thank God that I knew that because early sobriety is tough and, and you do deal with a lot of uh, feelings and uh emotions that have been dammed up for a long time and um, admitting powerlessness is is i think a key to getting through that uh, time thanks for letting me share Thank you. i'm jim i'm a sexaholic and uh this is my dilemma is that i am i haven't seen the full consequences of my behavior so 
to hear a process of really not only looking at those key, those um, milestone memories, which for me go back to really young. I was from a big family, so even with my sisters, and then to look at the risks that I'm able to occur for. For so many years, I've just been able to avoid the consequences, and um, and the risk is getting greater and greater. So, before I'm coming to here, I lost my sobriety, and um, and because I have no ideas, crazy, but um, so I have to start all over again. And it really is, I have not seen the consequences, full consequences yet, of my behavior, and that is the power of this program is to help me. To start to see that, to start to live that, and every story I hear from somebody here helps me to really start to see what happens when a man is not facing the consequences of his life. Thanks. Hi, everyone. My name is Ishan. I'm a sexaholic. Oh, wow. You got it. It's quick. Um, so I am in this program a little over three years enjoyed some nice periods of sobriety, but always kept on messing up and losing my sobriety. A chronic relapser, my experience is someone that just didn't get the program. I couldn't understand it. Like, life was becoming more and more unmanageable, and I knew I'm powerless. But whenever I came to a place I was able to act out, I forgot everything. I just acted out, and I couldn't figure it out. And I remember once I was by the therapist and they were all screaming at me like a group therapy of SA members. Um, what's going on with you? You're not, you don't have a step one. I thought, what should I do before I'll be dying from AIDS in jail and uh, divorced and uh, whatever else? I won't be able to recover. And the therapist himself, a recovering um, addict said, maybe. So I said, what do you want from that poor guy? And he said, I'm just telling him the truth. And I did not know what to do. And someone told me a tool which is very helpful for me when I use it. And that tool is I started to pray to God, please give me a step one experience. I realized it's not something external, something out there, because my life can get worse and worse, and I won't realize it. I'll forget it again and again. And I pray to God again, please help me and give me a step one experience. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Lewis. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, I'm really nervous, so I'll try to get my words out. Um, I'm a sobriety date is March 18, 2016. Um, step one. What I learned when I came into the program is that I define what my bottom is. And when I came to my first meeting, there was one guy who talked about how he just acted out the prostitute. And... You know, within the first week, I met plenty of people who their MOs are further down the line than, than mine are. I'm a high bottom drunk, quote unquote, as, uh, step one in the 12 and 12 talks about. And, but I suffered enough pain in what I already went through to know that I don't want to go through this anymore. And, By listening to other members and hearing them describe their stories and seeing my story and theirs, I very quickly realized that anything anybody does in the, in the meetings, um, I will end up doing because this is a progressive disease. 
and that's something I didn't know before. I just thought I couldn't I couldn't stop my masturbation or my pornography, my whatever it was. But the education, along with my experience, that it's just going to get worse, and it's a I decide when when to stop. Um, is what made me realize that I need to stop. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Kevin. I'm a sexaholic. And right now I'm regretting, wondering what the hell I was thinking coming up here. (laughs) Um, I'm from a couple hundred miles north of here. There really is actually a part of New York that's green. Um, I, I thank God every day that my bottom line, my rock bottom experience wasn't really all that rock bottom hard. Um, is, is real true sobriety and recovery possible without a, you know, a body slam like a really rock bottom recovery? Everybody here has been in the meetings long enough knows what they've heard the stories. And, uh, and I've seen people lose marriages, homes, children, uh, They've been divorced, fired, one suicide that I know of. And, and I thank that, I thank God that in, in His grace, He, in, in His goodness, He's protected me from that. And I'm really, really grateful from that. And I came close a couple of times. I was called in, you know, I was called in the office and told, you know, we think you're having a, a relationship with someone at work. That was the scariest moment I've ever had. And, uh, and my reputation was always as a really good worker and that was shattering. But, uh, luckily he's protected me. But if I choose to walk away from him, then I stop feeling his presence and his grace in my life. That's my big bottom line. If I stay away from God, if I walk away from him, I don't feel his presence in my life. In my faith, that means if you do that long enough, you will lose him forever. I don't want to go through my whole life without God's presence in my life and his blessing. I also don't want to lose him forever on the other side. So thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, my name is Steve. I'm a set. I am a set. I am a sexaholic. Thanks so much uh, for your leadership and shares. And um, I'm very grateful to be here. Um, I'm grateful for this program. um, Cause it's, it's given me a faith that works. Um, and I, I, I deeply trust uh, that God is doing for me what I can't do for myself. I can't get sober. Um, God can give me the power um, to not take that first drink, um, um, but it's Him who Him who does it, not me. And I, and I I I constantly forget that to the point where my sponsor two days ago said. Steve, you have to get on your knees every single hour for the next five weeks, and then you might understand what reliance on God means. And I thought that's pretty, uh, pretty medieval, um, you know. But, uh, but, um, but I, I've how I mean, how often has he heard me say in the last uh, four months, oh, I have to get on my knees, but I just have to do it, and it's like you know. He probably had enough of that. You know, he's probably annoyed by hearing that. Um, and in the last three meetings today, um, get on your knees, um, has come up in every single meeting. Um, so that's a consolation for me. Um, but I'm, I'm very grateful, um, uh, to be confronted with the, you know, putting language in my mouth of understanding that I have, I'm, I haven't, um, experienced the full consequences of my acting out. 
Um, so I had a, you know, my wife, uh, when we were dating in school, saw all these emails I sent to, to men, to women, to transsexual prostitutes, to, it doesn't, my, my disease goes wherever. Um, and, and she said, what the hell is this? You know? And I recognized, you know, I was reflecting on it a couple of weeks ago. And I said, that was the first time I understood powerlessness. Cause I, it was the first time I had to be honest with myself and with someone else. And I said, I don't know. I can't stop this. And I don't know why she hasn't left me. And she's seen many emails and text messages. And, uh, you know, I, I've cheated on her. And she doesn't know that yet. And I'm open to disclosing that. But that's for time to come. But, um, you know, uh, one day at a time, uh, my God will walk, walk with me. And I'm grateful for that gift. So, Thank you. I'd like to invite others to come up with the- if you'd like to share. Thank you for everyone for your shares. My name is Rick and I'm a sexaholic. Powerlessness and unmanageability. Um, For me, what I lost was definitely what happened inside. You know, I can lose stuff, but I lost myself. You know, um, I'm married 34 years now, so I was at a point two years ago where my story to the world was that I had married my high school sweetheart. We were the only people that had had sex with each other. And um, I'd been faithful all that time when in reality I was a fragmented person and I had been with over 100 casual encounters. Um, so where did that put me? If I was getting away with it, what have you, who knows? The outside world, no one knew about it. Internally... I was on Skid Row. They say Skid Row is not a place. It's a state of mind. And I just sat there. I travel a lot for work, sitting in a hotel room, thinking I was just a broken person. I mean, who am I? I have two. Outside, faithful husband, married over 30 years, two daughters, feminist, um, supporting all those types of things. But inside, all these little compartments. I think what happened to some extent wasn't – that life fell apart, but that life fell together, right? At all these little compartments and inside they just all crashed in on each other. And I just hit this point where I couldn't live with myself anymore and needed to find the program. So that's what brought me here. Um, and I thank you all to help show the way through the steps. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, my name is Dovey and I'm a recovering sex addict. Hi, Dovey. So uh, this topic is a really good topic for me, and it's something that uh, cycles through my mind uh, very often uh, because I look at you know recovering addicts and a lot of the addicts that are coming in you know with that desperation and coming in with their life completely you know messed up. Their their sobriety date is the day that they were in handcuffs, or they lost their house, or they lost you know so much in their lives. And for me, uh, my life is great. Life is just great on the outside. Uh, you know, got a nice wife, got kids, got a good job, got a nice house. Everything looks great. You know, two cars parked in the driveway, swimming pool, and everything's just great. And, uh, inside I'm, you know, tearing, tearing to pieces. And, uh, it's just tough to find that place of unmanageability and, you know, desperation. And, you know, so that it comes up into the head and I'm, I, you know, get sober for a bunch of months, and all of a sudden, this idea is like, "Hey, nothing's gonna, nothing's gonna happen if I just take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little snack, snack here, snack there." 
And, and what, what I come, what I've come to the conclusion with for myself is that there are two, you know, uh, two types of addicts that are, you know, gain recovery. I, I do think it's difficult recovery when life isn't, uh, when there isn't that desperation. But like someone said before, I can choose where, uh, where my desperation is. And what I have to see is and what's impactful for me is I know I can probably manage the rest of my life in this area of, you know, sneaking in and out, sneaking in and out, but I won't progress one bit. I'll stay the same 17 year old that I, that I have been and I won't mature. Everyone around me will mature. My kids will, will get, will be more mature than me very soon. And my life will, will just be the same as it is right now. And I won't gain anything. And, uh, life is miserable when, when we're not progressing. So it's kind of a decision, you know, it, instead of that, the desperation of being that I'm losing everything, I'm just not going to gain a thing. And that's, that's where I'm at now is I need sobriety. I need recovery because otherwise I'm going to stay here while ever, while the whole world progresses past me. So, uh, that's, that's, that's what I'm using right now, and I appreciate everybody's thoughts on the matter. And uh, looking forward to spending the rest of a wonderful weekend with all of you. Thank you. This would be the last share, then. Everybody, my name is Bob. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Bob. Uh, and uh, I got to tell you, I had no idea there was anything wrong. Five, eight masturbations a day. I didn't know anything was wrong. I didn't have anything to gauge it against. I wasn't getting any information from the folks. I wasn't talking to my brother. Uh, I had zero friends. Um, couldn't talk to girls. And I just didn't think anything was wrong. Uh, as time went on, uh, I remember uh, my dad uh, walking in while I was masturbating. And all he did was give me a good shot. Pow. And never talked about that. And so, I don't know. So, when it really comes down to finishing up was this. I eventually had to start drinking too, so that I could act out in the way I wanted to act out. And the only thing uh, about unmanageable was there was, is it wasn't that I wasn't going to get drunk. I was going to get drunk. But my problem was I didn't know when I was going to black out. And black out means that I would continue on uh, in a... Uh, uh, Going through my my uh, routine or whatever I was doing, I just didn't have any recollection of it. Sometimes I blacked out on the first drink. Sometimes I blacked out way into drinking. In the same way with lust, uh, it was just the way I tried to manage it. Once my marriage started falling apart, was I took I said to my wife, "We need marriage counseling." I went to the church and thank God there was a guy that they recommended because I thought. If me and this guy get in this room together, we can tell my wife where she's wrong. Mm. That's how I was going to manage my my lust problem. On the second <laughs> visit, when the whole uh, masturbation pornography thing rolled out, he looked at my wife and said, would you please go to the waiting room? I need to talk to your husband. And as she stood up and left, I my jaw dropped and I said, where's she going? You didn't tell her yet. You know, it's, it's your problem. And then he, after she left, she says, I think you're a sexaholic. And I was shocked. And this whole thing, incredibly naive, whatever you want to call it, it was a shock to me. It's not a shock anymore. It's the truth. Thanks. Thank you. In closing.
In closing, anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. Remember that we never identify ourselves publicly with SA in the press, radio, TV, or films. Neither does anyone speak for SA. This is an anonymous program. Please keep the name, address, and phone number of anyone you meet or learn about in SA to yourself. The shares we have have heard here were told in confidence. Please do not repeat what you have heard about another member to anyone who was not actually here at this meeting at the time that it was shared. Please, what we say here, when we leave here, let it stay here. Here, here. Could we please close with the uh, serenity, uh, make a circle and close with a serenity prayer? It can be a weird circle. It's okay. No, uh, six (laughs) holidays. Okay, prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to do the difference. I will not mind be done. You coming back, it works, it works, it's over. It was given to me, so I give it to you. Thanks for sharing, Oh, absolutely. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.